Hello, hello. Happy Sabbath. Welcome to Rock Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for worship this week. Um, whether you're, again, joining us from out of state, in the Portland area, SoCal, Arizona, Alaska, or technically, if you're joining us for the past or from the future, watching this at a different date. Um, if you heard last week, Pastor Chris started a new series and introduced a series called Protect This Mess. And if you're last week, it was kind of, um, it's kind of a challenging challenging message. And in this first part of this series, he introduced this concept of community. And he challenged us a little bit in the way that we interact with this community that many people in this room have found a lot of value in and importance in. And the way he challenged us, he, he, he asked a few questions about us in the way that we can interact with this community in a more intimate and a more intentional way. How much of this community are you willing to let into your life? How much of your life are you willing to let into this community, in this back and forth, give and take relationship? And really the conclusion, and I think the reason last week's message, if you're here, was so challenging, was because for so many of us, this community is important. And we do want to continue interacting with this community. And we do want this community to be a bigger part of our lives. And that's why it was so challenging, because we genuinely kind of wrestled with those questions of, how can I make church a bigger part of my life? And how can I make my life a bigger part of church. And if you're here sitting like, I don't know what those questions are, we invite you to join us on our podcast. All of our sermons are online. Uh, you can watch at Rock Fellowship. So again, we've kind of established last week in part one of our series, church is important. This community is important. And as the title of this series would indicate, we do, most of the people in this room want to protect this mess, protect this community that we are part of, whether or not you consider yourself a part of Rock Fellowship or whatever communities you have in your life. I think we can all agree, just as social creatures, as humans, that community is important to us, and for a lot of us, hopefully, this community is important and brings value to you. And that's kind of the starting ground for where we're starting this series on. Community is important, and yes, I do want to protect this mess because it's my mess, and I'm a part of this, and it's, there's something beautiful about being a part of this community. Join us in prayer as we go into the second part of this series. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you so much um, again for this opportunity, this privilege, and this reminder that we just sang about of how great you are, God. I don't know if we'll ever really understand uh, this, the disparity between how great and how awesome you are versus how much you want to spend time with us, that we creatures that aren't as great, Lord. And we thank you so much for that. Somehow, your greatest moment was when you were humbly hanging on a cross, Lord, for our sins, Lord, and that your love for us is something that we can simply never imagine. Lord, our prayer today is that uh, your will be done in rock fellowship as it is done in heaven. Praise in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, what we're establishing and kind of the turning point of this series for this part of the next few series is now that community is important to us, what are ways that we can actually protect this community? What are things that harm this community? What are things that maybe you and I are doing that are potentially damaging and threatening to topple the community that we are a part of? Um, Pastor Chris mentioned this last week at the end of the sermon, uh, end, of the, end of kind of worship service afterwards. He came up and made an announcement that um, I'm starting my graduate program. Um, and what he didn't tell you um, and what was kind of like why some people may have been confused was um, for a while, I did not think I was going to get into this graduate program. Um, I turned to my application and the board and the elders had talked about it. Um, and we're like, okay, um, if we can get all the paperwork done, I need a few letters of recommendations from people. And I felt like as long as I can get those in, I should be good. And I got all those recommendation letters in. I got all my like, application portfolio. I turned it in. And I felt like once everything is turned in, I'm good because like who gets rejected from seminary? Like there's no way. So I turned it in, and then the minute I turned in my last piece of the application, I got a phone call from the lady that had kind of been my point person and kind of guiding me through this process. And she said, hey, Jonathan, this is Aram God, and I just want to talk to you about your application. I've noticed um, 
that you are not 35. And I was like, yes, this is true. This is, uh, uh, is this a problem? And she's like, well, this is highly unusual. And so the committee's gonna need to meet and like vote on whether or not they wanna make an exception to allow you in. And then I started getting nervous. I was like, whoa, oh, so you're saying like, I might not get in. And she's like, it is highly unusual. And then she started like naming like, well, there's an alternative. What about like hybrid seminary? What about, I was like, no, 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 I don't wanna go to Andrews. Like, what do you mean? Like, I might not get in. And she said, you know, well, I can't do anything. I'm not part of this, but you can expect a phone call from the graduate, the admissions officer, and then you can state your case then. And then, like, I was like, oh, I'm, like, writing a pen. I'm, like, stating, well, whoa, what is my case? What, what am I going to say? Why should they let me in? And for about a month, it was just, like, radio silence. No communication. At one point, I did get another phone call, and the phone call was basically like, hey, are you sure you don't want to try just coming to seminary? Like, and I was like, oh, no, I don't. And she's like, do you have, I'm like, do you have any news on my application? And she's like, no, but someone told me to pitch this to you. And I was like, oh, I got even more nervous. I was like, oh, that must, that must not be good. And then maybe a few weeks ago, which is the reason why the announcement came so late, I got an email saying, you're in. No phone call. They just, you're good. And I was like, oh, my gosh, praise the Lord. But also, what the heck is going on over there? And so because of that, um, I registered really late for my winter classes. And so what happened was I'd like, so late to the point where one of my professors that I'd signed up for would not let me register for his class. He said, there's too much work. You aren't going to be able to complete it. You're going to join us for class and have nothing to contribute. And then I emailed. I was like, no, no, no. Because if you miss a class here, you have to wait like a year or two before you can take your next one. And I'm trying to wrap this up as quickly as possible. So I emailed him and I was like, it's for church history. Listen, Dr. I love history. Like it's my favorite thing in the whole wide world. And like I was stating my case, I swear, I promise I will get all the coursework done. I will stay up late. How bad could it possibly be? And I was like, I promise you, please let me take this class. And then like I found out that the course reading was a class I'd already taken. I was like, I already took this class from Dr. Markovich and I loved it. It was so awesome. And it just, wow, I love history. And then after the email, I was like, all right, ooh, I'll let you in on the condition that you finish all the coursework before you show up on Sunday. I was like, of course, thank you so much. I will never forget this. And then I looked at the course material, I was like, dang, this is a lot of reading. And I bought the book, I was like, holy moly, was this book always so big? So this past week, I have been just cramming church history. And to be fair, I love history. And that part was, I tried not to lie in my email. I genuinely do love, I do love history. And a lot of it is actually super fascinating. And one of the things that I, I think is super cool about specifically church history is that there's a lot of things that happen in the development of the church that are like, ooh, I can see that happening now. And there's like trends and there's definitely these cycles. And one of the cool things that I thought um, stood out and something I never really thought about when it came to like the early, early church, like the first two, three hundred years of the church developing was this concept of, of martyrs. And so if you're unfamiliar, a martyr is someone, especially within the Christian church, that dies for their faith. And in the early Christian church, for the first 300 years under the Roman Empire, I mean, Christianity was like outlawed. It was really like you had to like keep it on the low key. Those meetings, illegal meetings were gathered. Yet despite all of this, despite how much the odds were stacked against them, the Jews hated the Christians because they seemed like a cult and a sect. The Romans hated them because they wouldn't worship the Roman Empire and they threatened disunity. Despite all of the odds being stacked against them, the church continued to grow. And one of the reasons the church grew was because there were people that were willing to stand up for their faith. And when push came to shove, they stood in front of the court, the governors, and say, you know what, you can say whatever you want, you can say whatever threats you want to me, but I will not renounce Jesus Christ. And people will like die for their faith. And I don't know, there's something about like that concept of being a martyr, it's like, it's kind of cool. 
Not that like I would wish that on anyone or myself, but there's something about that. Like if, you, if church is valuable to you and you look around and you appreciate what's going on here, there's a part of you that has to be like, dang, like that's very like respectable of them. That church was so important to them that it trumped self-preservation. Obviously, like this concept of martyrdom is super cool. And it's like, we talk about it a lot. And when I was younger, um, I was at church and someone left a book lying around. And I don't know if anyone has read this book. The book was called Jesus Freaks. Um, it had this weird kind of archaic cover on it. And it was essentially a collection of like modern day Christian martyrs. And I was like way too young to be reading this. But someone left it out and I read it. And it's just like really like gory, descriptive tales of like how people died for their faith. And I was like in junior high and I was like, oh my gosh. And it's like, it was one of those where I was like, oh my goodness, next page. Oh my goodness, next page. And a part of me was like scared and it was disturbing. But at the same time, like, it evoked some amount of like, wow, that's super awesome. That's super respectful that people would do that. And because of these people and because of the sacrifices they're willing to make, the church grew and survived during that age of persecution. One of the uh, historians, Tertullian, said the blood of the martyrs was a seed. For the more it spilled, the greater the number of Christians. And I think there's something about the fact that people from the outside saw these Christians, saw their neighbors, saw their friends willing to die for their faith. It was so important to them that they could stand up for their faith that they're like, dang, this is, they must know something. There must be something greater I want to know. And again, a lot of the evangelism that happened in the first 300 years happened not in the streets, but in like kitchens and homes and dinner parties where people just talk to their friends and like, I've discovered this truth. And it's super awesome. And I think we love talking about martyrs and it's like, it's an amazing, as much as it kind of scares us and freaks us out, there's something noble about it. But I think what we don't talk about as often is the other side of that coin. What about the people that went up and they were brought before the court and the governor said, all right, you need to renounce your faith. And again, in the first 300 years of Christianity, there was a, most of the time, the Roman government didn't think it was worth it to like actively persecute Christians. It was just like, if someone ratted you out, and brought you in front of the court, then they'd be like, all right, listen, all you gotta do is just say you don't believe in Jesus, worship the, worship the emperor, and then we'll let you go. It's really not worth us making a big deal out of this, right? And a lot of people would just be like, just bow down, this is it, okay. Nah, and then they'll leave, and they renounce their faith. And so many people did that to the point where it was like almost disturbing. And for in a lot of ways, it wasn't a big problem for a while because those people would just, you know, leave the church, and there were these discussions. But when it really came to fruition was, um, when Christianity started to become mainstream and when the emperor of Rome converted to become a Christian. And now you're not persecuted for a Christian anymore. You don't have to hide. Christianity is safe. It's legal. It's mainstream. And when that happened, the tension became all these people that left the church, all these people that renounced their faith, they want to come back to church now. Hey, can we join potluck now? Can I come to church again? And the problem became was like, well, what do we do with these people? Right? They deserted the church. We just, we just let them back in. And at first, you might be thinking, yeah, of course. Like, that's what Jesus would do. But then, like, put yourself in the shoes. Like, imagine if, if you had a family member, right? Let's, let's, let's make it real personal and awkward. Like, let's say, like, you had, like, a daughter, right, that got ratted out by her school friend. And your daughter went to the court, and the governor said, listen, you need to give up your faith in Jesus. And your daughter looked at the governor, the Roman official, and said, I will not renounce my faith. And your daughter was killed for her faith. And then your next door neighbor had a daughter that was ratted out for being a Christian. And she went to the court. And the court said, listen, you just got to worship the emperor and we'll let you go. And she said, okay. And she worshiped the emperor and her daughter came back home. And now they want to come back to church. 
Like, how does that make you feel? Like, it's just like, there's no way that sits easily with you. And these people, the people that stood up to their faith and the people that were either tortured or imprisoned because of their faith were known as confessors. And they were highly regarded in the churches. These people were like, dang, look, there goes that confessor. That guy got tortured for like so long and he held on to his faith. And these people, once Christianity became mainstream and people wanted to join the church in droves, along with the people that had deserted, they started getting a little, hmm, I mean, should we allow all these people back in church? Think about it. They left us when it was important. When push came to shove and when we needed to stick together the most, they just walked out on us. Like, should we really let these people back in? And it became a really, really big point of conflict for the church. What do we do with these so-called deserters? Actually, they went as far to call them as traditores in Latin, traitors, right? They're the Judases of our church. What do we do with these people? What do we do with, like, the bishops and, like, the pastors that did that? Do we just let them back in? What do we do with our family members and our friends that, like, hey, man, my dad was killed for his faith, and he just walked out. We should just let him back in? And the problem became, and this, that, with, for the confessors, when they viewed these people, what essentially happened was that person that deserted the faith, that person that survived this persecution because they took the easy way out, they are nothing more than that. They are nothing more than a deserter. They are nothing more than someone that's lazy, selfish, and spineless. That's all that they are. And that's why it was so hard for them to let them come back to church, despite the fact that there are so many passages in Scripture that would, that would seem to suggest you should probably let them come back to church, right? But for them, they were so caught up in, that's who you are. You are simply and comprehensively a deserter. That's all that you are. In other words, they were nothing more than their worst quality. Hey, you left the church, you left our faith, and now that is all you are. When I see you, all I can think about is how you survived because you took the easy way out. And honestly, most of us, when we, when he, when we put it that way, most of us can probably relate to that sentiment, that feeling of, yeah, I can see why they would think that way. Yeah, you know what? Maybe if I was in those shoes, I would, prove it, I would probably feel that same way too. But that dynamic, that feeling of viewing someone as simply nothing more than their worst quality is what today we would call, in a lot of ways, in like, in like just the way we casually talk to one another, judgment, right? The idea of, I'm going to define judgment for the sake of the sermon, but I'm assuming most of us know what I mean when I say that word. Not necessarily the dictionary definition, but what you mean when you tell someone, stop judging me. Stop being such a judgmental person. Um, and kind of the definition that I came up with, um, as far as for the purposes of the sermon, um, is that the practice of labeling someone or forming a comprehensive opinion about them based on a small aspect of that person's life, usually a negative interaction or a negative character trait. I'll say that again. The practice of labeling someone or forming a comprehensive opinion about them based on a small aspect of that person's life, usually a negative interaction or a negative character trait. Basically this, you just, all you can think about someone is their worst quality, and that defines who they are to you. For the purpose of the sermon, that's what I'll be referring to as judgment. And maybe you've been accused of that before, right? Maybe if someone's like, hey man, you're such a judgmental person, stop judging me. And for all of us, I think we can agree, it's an insult. If someone calls you a judgmental person, we don't like that, it's insulting, and it doesn't make us feel very good. Especially if you're accused um, of being judgmental within the context of church. And the implication of judgment, the implication of being a, someone accusing you of being a judgmental person is that they're saying, look, you must think that you're better than me. If you can, if you can say that about you, if you think I'm a bad person, if you are defining me by my worst quality, you must think that you are somehow higher than me. 
somehow better than me, which was definitely the case for the early church. Those confessors were like, look, I am a better Christian than you. I stood my ground. You don't get to come in. And on top of that, the other side of that coin is you must also think that if you're criticizing me about my worst quality and defining me by my worst moments, you must think that you don't have any flaws. You must think that you are somehow not only higher than me, but like you don't have that flaw, that you're better than me, that you're somehow perfect so that you can pass that judgment onto me. And again, a lot of us can relate to that sentiment of the early church. Imagine if you were a confessor, you were the one that took that pain, you were tortured, you're in prison, or you lost a loved one. You can see how it's easy for us to feel that way about someone that deserted, right? Yeah, no, I am a better Christian than you. You left, I stayed. I am a better Christian than you. Our family is a better Christian family than you. My dad stood for his faith and he passed away. He died, he stood his ground, your dad deserted. It can be easy to feel that way, and you can see why you can relate to them. But if you do relate to them, and if you feel like, yeah, I've been in that position before, you may or may not have some judgmental tendencies. And I say that in the most loving way because I'm assuming I'm talking to everyone in this room when I say that. And to be honest, the reason is judging others, forming that singular opinion of them is like, it's way too easy. It's so easy to just take some, a small aspect of someone's life and use it to paint their entire being. This bad quality, this one bad interaction they have just paints the entirety of who that person is for me. It's almost like, we talked about it in Sabbath school, one of the youth said, it's like almost natural. Like, how can you not, right? A lot of the way we interact with each other is based on that premise. And again, I'm not saying that it's, it's not good or not bad, but again, it takes a lot of effort to not do that. And it's definitely easier to go into a mindset of judgment and going to other people. But keeping that in mind, I don't think I really need to explain why that's a bad thing. I don't think it requires much explanation as to why if we continue to view other people simply by their worst quality, why that will destroy this community and why we cannot continue to be a loving community if we let judgment and a perspective and an attitude of judgment towards others just run rampant within this loving community. I think that's, that's understandable. The question then becomes, and maybe you've never really asked yourself that question before, why, why then do you judge? Where does that attitude come from? What causes someone to feel like I am better than you and that I can talk about your life? What, where does that mindset, where does that heart really come from? And for that, I wanna to turn to Matthew chapter seven. Matthew chapter seven is the last chapter in Jesus' kind of epic three chapter sermon on the Mount. And it's the last of his three, which starts on Matthew chapter five in the Beatitudes. And it's a, it's a pretty long sermon, but the, the premise of the sermon is basically Jesus teaching his followers, this is how you should live. I want you to live like this. And if you grew up in the church, um, you've definitely read the beginning of Matthew chapter seven before. And Matthew chapter seven begins with the phrase, do not judge others and you will not be judged. That's verse one. And then Jesus goes on to give this very famous illustration. We've all heard of it. I would, I would argue this has transcended the church itself. Why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log or a plank in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. And again, if you grew up in the church, you've heard this hundreds of times, right? That, oh, the speck and plank analogy. And again, like you teach it in children's ministry, people have preached on it. It's a very familiar concept. And it's so, it's so simple, but I feel like that's why it's so genius. And again, what Jesus reveals through this illustration, right? You have a speck, you see speck in someone's eye, but you have a plank in your eye. How can you try to help someone else remove a speck from their eye when you're blinded by the plank in your eye. First, remove the plank, 
and then you can help that person remove the speck. And when he says, and he yells it out in the middle of the passage, is when you can't, let me, let me help you. How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. And he accuses of people that do that from having a spirit of hypocrisy. You can only do that if you're being a hypocrite. And I would argue the reason we judge others, the reason it's so easy for us and we naturally want to look at other people and define them by their worst possible trait is because we are hypocrites. And according to this passage, the reason hypocrisy leads to judgment, the reason a spirit of hypocrisy leads us to naturally judge other people and look at their worst trait is because hypocrisy blinds us. Again, the illustration of the plank. Hypocrisy, it fundamentally blinds you to a few things into your life. And I would argue there are two things that it blinds you to and both contribute to destroying community. And the first one is this. First and the most obvious reason is this. Hypocrisy blinds us to our own faults. When you're a hypocrite, again, it's so much easier for you to look at someone else's problems, look at someone else's spec and be like, you, 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 stop, 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 bad, 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 instead of turning the mirror on your own life. And it gives you a, like an elevated sense of self. There's something about just pointing out all the bad things going on in other people's lives that somehow subtly in a gross, sinful way makes you feel a little bit better. The implication is, look at all the bad stuff going on in other people's lives. Oh, misery loves company. You feel a little bit bad, better about yourself at the expense of others. And again, the implication of you hunting for other people's specs and on the prowl for like the things going on, the flaws in other people's lives, is that you don't think you have a speck of your own. Again, you're blinded to your own flaws and you feel like you're good. You don't have sizable flaws. And because of that, you're qualified. Yeah, I'm qualified to go speck hunting because I'm good. I don't have a speck. I don't have sizable flaws, but you guys do. So let me point them out for you guys. And another major downside to this blindness is that when you are blinded to your own faults, again, not only does it make you more naturally inclined to like look at other people's problems and point out the flaws and defects in other people's lives, but it also prevents you from truly experiencing God's love in your own life. Because from a posture of hypocrisy, you can never truly experience God's grace because you don't need it. From a spirit of hypocrisy, you're good. You're fine. Other people are the problem. You don't have any flaws. And you're blinded to yourself. And if that's the case, you can never truly experience God's grace, which is best served from a posture of humility and you needing him because you feel like I don't have it all together. From a spirit of I'm good, I'm fine, I don't have a speck, you would never need to experience God's grace because God's grace by definition comes when you feel like you don't deserve it. So again, not only does it blind you to your own flaws and, and causes you to have you know, bad tendencies and habits of pointing out other people's flaws, from a fundamental you and God standpoint, it prevents you from experiencing the fullness and trueness of God's love because by definition, you feel like you don't need it. Again, you're good, other people are bad. And again, from that kind of mindset, you'll never really be able to experience that feeling, and I don't know, many, many of you have probably experienced it before. If you had a moment where you like walked away from God and for one way or another, God pulled you back. For me, in so many circumstances, what brought me back to faith, what brought me back to a relationship with God and making him the center of my life again was when I felt that in my lowest moments, when I didn't deserve God's love, he reached out to me in grace and said, I still love you regardless. And there's something about that grace and that love that moves you to then come back to God. The problem is with hypocrisy, you never really truly get to experience that. 
The second thing it blinds us to, and I would argue this is much more important to, as it pertains to how you interact with others, is that hypocrisy, again, the first thing, it blinds you um, to your own fault, the own flaws and faults. The second thing is hypocrisy blinds you to the worth and value of other people. And the way that it does that is by, it reduces the person you're looking at to nothing more than the speck in their eye. In other words, that person becomes the speck. That's all they are. You're so focused on that flaw, on that negative aspect of their life, that that's all they are. They're not that person, the human. They're not the speck on that eye. They are, in and of themselves, that negative trait or that speck. Um, if you've ever said any version of the following statements, you may or may not be suffering from hypocritical blindness. Um, that person, that person is not a good person because he or she does. That person is dumb. That person is not smart because he or she thinks that. That person is weird because he or she said that. Or another way of saying this, if you've ever said, all you need to know about that person is that they think this. All you, listen, all you need to know about that person is they have this controversial opinion. All you need to know about that person is the way they raise their kids is like this. All you need to know about the person is that someone told me that they went to this one place. If you've ever said any version of those statements, chances are you've reduced someone simply to their worst aspect. Listen, you don't need to know about them. All you need to know, truly, honestly, that person in a nutshell is this negative interaction I have with them. That's all they are. And when you do that, you lose sight of who that person is on a grander scale. They just simply become that worst trait. And this type of thinking, for sure, guarantee, has so much precedent in destroying community. And again, maybe you've seen it play out on a smaller scale at the local church where you grew up, or maybe you've seen it at Rock. But just take that further back. From the history of the church, that, again, that tension where people were like, listen, you can't enter the church because you're nothing more than a traitor, that caused so many schisms or splits within the church because people were so divided. Should we let them in? Should we not let them in? If we let them in, how hard should it be for them to re-enter the church? Should we have any requirements at all? And those theological debates tore the church apart and people left the church. I mean, part of the people, some people looked at this unfolding and were like, oh, this is gross. Like, I can't, why is this even a debate? And they left. They went to the wilderness and started the monastic movement where they became monks and just lived out in the wilderness. Some people saw this debate and were like, felt so strongly one way or another that they split from the church and created their own sect. And said, you know what, we're going to have our own version of Christianity. And, it, and then they, were, they declared the main church heretics. And the main church said, no, you're a heretic. And people were torn. Do we go this way? Do we go that way? And again, all this infighting almost tore the church apart because people could not get over the fact that this person is nothing more than their worst moment in their life. That person, the only thing you need to know about that person is that they were brought in front of the court and they renounced being a Christian. And now that Christianity is legal, they want to come back. That person is not a good Christian because he or she yielded to persecution and renounced Christianity instead of standing firm. Don't worry about them. They're not a good person. At this point, it's like, I think, I think the point has been made. Okay, we should not judge. Judging is bad. Judging will kill community. And the problem because, and we talked about this in our youth sab school just earlier, the next natural question is, so what do I do? What am I supposed to so just not judge? Okay, I get it. Just don't judge people. Mind your own business. Don't point out the flaws in other people's lives. Keep your head down. Everyone looks good. Everyone's awesome. The problem is if you read Matthew chapter 7, that's not necessarily the case. That's not what Jesus asks us to do. If you reread the passage in Matthew 7, Jesus' teaching isn't that we should just mind your own business. It isn't that you should leave the speck in that person's eye and just pretend it's not there. And you know this because if you've got real friends... If your true friends will look at you after potluck and after you have hate stacks and be like, listen, 
you have a lot of beans stuck in your teeth and it looks terrible. Right? Again, it's not a loving thing to let your friend walk around with like beans stuck in their teeth. It's really gross, right? A friend, like a, a casual acquaintance, someone you just met, will stare at it and not say anything. And they're like, and you're like, hey, is something wrong? No, no, no. Everything's good. And just stare at you. But a real friend will be like, listen, you look like a pirate right now. Like, it looks like half your teeth are missing. And they'll grab your finger and they'll get it out for you. That's a true friend. They'll look at you, look at the spec, and be like, this is a problem. We got to address this. And again, the genius of kind of Jesus' illustration is it's not a loving thing to look at a speck in someone else's eye and be like, looks good to me, and walk away. It's definitely easier, but it's definitely, it's not a characteristic of a loving community. In fact, when you read the passage, the entirety of the illustration is based with the assumption and the expectation that you are trying to help someone remove a speck from their eye. And the question just becomes, what is the correct way to do it? How can I correctly, lovingly remove this speck, remove this blemish, remove this bad habit, remove this bad path that my friend is on from their life without being judgmental, without characterizing them as their worst quality, and without being a hypocrite myself? And again, in essence, because the mechanic through which hypocrisy leads to judgment is blindness, the question then becomes, how can I not be blind? In other words, how can I remove the plank from my eye so that I can see clearly? Um, Ellen White has this, has this line on describing how we can solve this sort of spiritual blindness. Um, she says, that, but while Christ saved the sinner, he does not do away with the law which condemns the sinner. The law shows us our sins as the mirror shows us that our face is not clean. The mirror has no power to cleanse the face. That is not its office. So it is with the law. It points out our defects and condemns us, but it has no power to save us. We must come to Christ for pardons from signs of times. Ellen White and Paul talks about in, in Romans chapter 7, the tool that they describe in which you can cleanse your face, the way you can look at yourself as a mirror to remove the plank is God's law. The law of God is what points that mirror back in your face and, and allows you to ask the question, what am I actually trying to do here? Am I being a hypocrite? We as followers of God must use that tool. Now to be clear, um, it's very possible, it's very possible to try to remove the speck from someone else's eye without removing the plank in your own eye. Jesus implies that you can do it. And practically speaking, I think it's done in one of two ways. And you've probably seen this play out in your social circles, at school, at church, growing up. The first way you can do that is you just simply call out someone's speck in a hurtful way. Hey, you have a speck. Hey, I've noticed you went there. Hey, you should probably stop doing that. And then you walk away. Implying, look, you're a bad person for doing that. I think you should know that, but I'm out. I'm not going to help you remove that speck. And implying when you do that, you just make that person feel bad about themselves, and then you just feel a little bit better about yourself. It's easy, it's clean, and then you walk away. They feel bad, you feel good, the interaction ends. And you've probably seen that happen before, where someone just nags or calls someone out on their worst quality, and there's no, like, that's it. That's just all they do. The conclusion of that interaction is you feel bad, I feel a little better, peace. That's it. That's one way, one, one possible way to interact with someone without removing the plank in your eye, which, again, Jesus does not recommend, and, again, would kill our community. The second is a lot more subtle and potentially much more sinister. And it's by seeing a speck in someone else's eye and not telling them about it and telling your friends about that speck in someone else's eye. We refer to that simply as gossip. And I think there's something about gossip that, it's, again, it's kind of like judgment, but it's so everyone talks about everyone and I, it's almost seen as a natural byproduct of community. If you know people, you're going to talk. But I think there's something so much more sinister to that concept of looking at someone's speck not telling them about it, and then telling your friends about it, that really drives a wedge in community. And it's so serious, in fact, that it's actually one of the next parts of our series, and Pastor Chris will be addressing that in a sermon in and of itself because of how nefarious 
gossip can be. However, when we use the law as a mirror to recognize our own flaws, we're able to lovingly remove the speck from our brother, our sister. And the way we can do that is by asking ourselves this question. Is what I'm doing following the law that Jesus outlined? Is what I'm doing being done in the spirit of loving God and loving others? Which Jesus summarizes the entirety of the law. Asking yourself the question, look, I notice a speck in someone else's eye. I notice a flaw a bad habit that they have that's going to lead them down a bad path. They're making pretty poor choices. They're not doing something they probably should do. Hey, man, I've noticed you've been going to this place. I've noticed this in my life. I've noticed this in my friend's life, in my community member's life. And I need to now ask myself this question. In interacting with them, am I doing this out of a spirit of loving God and loving others? And to be more specific to Rock Fellowship, I think the question that you can ask yourself is this. Am I pointing out this speck in the spirit of judgment or in the spirit of accountability. The implication of that question is this. If you're going to point out someone else's speck, you must then be willing to help them remove that speck from their lives, as opposed to just pointing it out, laughing, mocking, and walking away. And Jesus, again, the whole point of of Matthew chapter 7, that first section, implies that you are trying to help someone remove a speck in their lives. And again, I think that you can extrapolate that message even further. Like, the, the, the practice, the procedure, so to speak, of removing a speck from someone else's eye is very delicate. It's very intimate, potentially not a one-and-done kind of deal. Likewise, when you're interacting with someone and you see a negative trait in someone else's life, you see someone going down a path they probably shouldn't go on, and you're thinking about pointing it out, you must first ask yourself the question, am I going to help this person? That's the, am I going, am I doing this in a spirit? Am I going to point out the speck in the spirit of helping them remove it? Because if you're not, I would argue, then don't say anything. Don't tell them. Don't talk to your friends about it. Don't let that define who they are. But if you are willing to help them remove that speck, ask yourself then the next question. Am I doing this from a spirit of judgment, of condemnation, of putting them down so I can feel myself, feel better about myself? Or am I doing this from a spirit of accountability? Am I willing to then, if I point out the speck, in a loving way? Am I willing to then walk with this person through this process of removing that speck from their lives? As long as it may be, as messy as it may be, am I willing to do that? Because if not, I would argue the best option is to not point it out at all. Because really, I think what will kill this community is we just, if we walk around pointing and laughing at other people's specks while not doing anything about it at all. Again, an easier way to live life, but not necessarily a loving one. And again, as I'm talking about this, I think one of the, as I was writing the sermon, I was like, dang, this is, a, this is not easy. Again, a lot of, when I describe the concept of judgment, a lot of us can relate to the confessors of the church, the people that stood their ground. We can, we can understand why they wouldn't want them to enter the church. And again, I would argue it's, it's so easy to judge people. It's so easy to characterize someone simply as their worst quality. And I would go as far to say it's not really intrinsic in ourselves to be able to overcome that, that mindset that habit that we have. For some of us, again, we talked about in the youth, in a moment of honesty, they said, it's like, how can you not? Like, how can you not form that opinion about someone? How can you not just naturally, my mind just goes there, what am I supposed to do? In that spirit, um, as we close with prayer, I do wanna ask, um, we're gonna have a time of prayer where it'll be personal to you and we'll have a pause, I'll lead us out in prayer and we'll pause. And in that moment, I'd like to ask that you pray to God in your own and ask for that help. Because I would argue the only way you can overcome that judgmental mindset, the only way you can be free from condemning others based on their worst quality while thinking you somehow are fine is through the Holy Spirit. 
And I invite you guys to pray now in this moment. And again, we'll have a moment of silence when we pause and we ask that, again, you take your time to personally bring that to God and ask for him to change your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, it's a tough ask, I realize, Lord. And again, it, it's, it's almost so natural for us in our sinful nature to look at someone and, and ignore our own sinfulness and feel like we are somehow better and more and more perfect and less sinful than the people around us, Lord. Father, I ask that you humbly, you humble us in this moment, Lord, and help us to realize that we are all sinners, Father, yet we are all still very much loved by you, Lord. And Lord, I don't, I don't think I need to explain to anyone, everyone has understood that, that if we let this concept of judgment run rampant in our community, it most definitely will destroy this mess and we'll be unable to protect it, Father. So I ask that your spirit change us from the inside out, change Rock Fellowship, change our community, change our world, change our church in a way that we can be transformed in your love and that we not view people as a speck, but as children of God, just like we are, Lord. In this time, we pray to you for your help and guidance to transform us in your image. Cannot be overcome. Your name is alive, forever lifted high. Your name cannot be overcome. If you're done praying, stand with me and sing this. Your name is a light that the shadows can't deny. Your name cannot be overcome your name is alive forever lifted high your name cannot be overcome by jesus name we can be this community your name is alive and that the shadows can't deny your name cannot be overcome we pray your name is alive forever lifted high your name cannot be overcome we call out to jesus 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 you make the dark the darkness inside of us jesus, jesus. The silence fear, oh Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness. 
to be one that is truly a loving community. That's part of who we are in our mission as a church, to be a loving community and to connect people to that community. So uh, thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you, Pastor Jonathan, for sharing the word of God with us and challenging us to, to love one another as he has called us to love. And I'm so thankful that you're studying and learning all these wonderful, amazing things that you can use in sermons and teach us. Like, man, we're so, so lucky. All right, we got a couple announcements as we conclude our service today. As always, I want to encourage you guys to support our local church through online giving. Go to the Adventist Giving app or AdventistGiving.org. Search Oregon Central, Creenesty, and you can donate to our tithe, the Rock Fund, which is our local budget, or a couple of other causes. The Compassion Fund is a fund that we, uh, that we have to help out members of our own community who may be struggling, uh, struggling or having trouble in, in their life. Uh, we support an orphanage in Korea. You can donate there as well. So please support our local church through online giving. Next week, March 5th, is our Young Adult Game Night that's going to be held in Ridgefield, Washington. It's going to start at 5 o'clock, and we'll give details uh, to you guys, those of you who are interested. Uh, I've talked to a number of you. Uh, we're going to have a great time. It's going to be a lot of fun, a lot of uh, community building, a lot of uh, food, and it's going to be great. So I want to invite all of our young adults to that. Uh, May 6 to 8 is our annual Canon Breach. We have voted to, uh, our board has voted to go through with the retreat. We have missed it the last two years. And, uh, you know, we're all really excited because it's one of the highlights of the year. So uh, we want to ask you guys to, to uh, save the date, May 6th through 8th. This is a whole church thing. We don't have service that weekend. It's May 6th through 8th. Yes, we know it's Mother's Day. We do know that. And we go there because it's cheapest on Mother's Day. <laughs> I promise to do something nice for moms after you get home. Uh, but it's a great retreat. Uh, Sign-ups and everything and more information will come out shortly. But I hope you guys can save the day May 6 to 8 for Cannon Beach. Uh, finally, we want to invite all of you guys to join us for our potluck, uh, our lunch today. Um, as soon as this service is done, you can walk out on the left side, the Fellowship Hall. There's food there. Uh, it's a big, big part of our community here is eating together and spending that time together. Though if you feel uncomfortable, there's always takeout options available. So uh, with that, thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you for those of us joining us online. Have a wonderful rest of the day, and we will see you next time.